Good morning, everyone. If you're out in the foyer, come on in. We're starting one of my favorite modules in Bible Training Institute today. We're going to start Module 5 and our Systematic Theology portion. We're going to do something that you, you almost won't hear taught in any church, and that is the Major Biblical Covenants. Um, and I'm sort of flabbergasted as to why covenants aren't taught because they are really almost the way you understand the Bible. So uh, we're going to kind of introduce the covenants. We'll try and get to the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenants. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I, I hope this is interesting to you. Um, these are the, the, the covenants are the wheels upon which the, the vehicle of redemptive history rolls. So very, very important. So let's pray and we'll get our Lord's Day started today. Thank you, Father, so much for this day, for this opportunity to uh, dive into your word and to think about the way you have chosen to deal with mankind through glorious covenants, which you are certainly not obligated to make with us, and yet you have obligated yourself through the majesty of your own, your own greatness, according to your own character, you have sworn to uphold covenants that were your idea in the first place. And so we see them very clearly as elements of your grace. And so we thank you, Lord, for this chance this morning to begin our Lord's Day thinking about the big picture of Scripture and how you have chosen to deal with mankind. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. And let me be probably not the first, but one, to say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We'll talk about that more later. Um, I'm always glad that it falls on the Lord's Day. I think that's appropriate and, and ought to be that way. So today we're going to introduce biblical covenants. We'll try to get to Noahic and Abrahamic covenants. And just so you know, this is a massive field of study. So to try to do this in a day is really almost ridiculous. But I'll try to hit a few mountain peaks that will probably help you. So let's just introduce some basic concepts here about covenants. Oh, we've already frozen up there. Sorry. Next, uh, next slide, please. Introduction to major biblical covenants. There we go. What is a covenant? It's a legally binding obligation. And it's, it's different than a contract. Uh, a contract is a legally binding obligation. But a covenant has a relationship aspect to it. So that's why we don't call marriage a contract. For example, marriage is a covenant. There's a relational aspect. When you sign a contract to buy your house... Uh, the last paragraph in that contract does not say we promise to be best friends with the seller um, forever. There's no relationship there. It's just purely a legal agreement. Covenant takes that to a different level. It is relational. God has a kingdom program and the covenants are the vehicle for God's kingdom program. They're, I said a minute ago, they're the wheels upon which the, the redemptive history of God rolls. What is the kingdom program? Here's the Bible in three lines. Genesis 1 and 2, the kingdom is created. Genesis 3 through Revelation 19, the fall and the cross. And Revelation 20 through 22, the kingdom is restored. And so that's God's kingdom program right there. And the covenants are what drive the vehicle toward the end of Scripture. Let's get a little bit more specific. Covenant is a major part of the fabric of God's plan. Covenants are mentioned in 27 of 39 Old Testament books. 
and 11 of 27 New Testament books. Those are just the direct mentions. I, I think I could make a case that covenant is referred to at least indirectly in every single book of the Bible. And I'll give you an example. Every single uh, event in the book of Esther in which covenant is not mentioned and which even the name of God is not mentioned, every single event in the book of Esther illustrates and demonstrates the providence of God to work behind the scenes. Why is God working behind the scenes with a whole bunch of Jews who chose not to return from exile, but to stay in Persia and be saved by God? Why would that be connected to covenant? Because God made a covenant with his people, uh, with Abraham, that his descendants would someday form a whole nation. And so you have to remember in the book of Esther, the vast majority of Jews are still in Persia, not in Israel. And so uh, you have this, this uh, great idea here that every book in the Bible can eventually be pointed back to covenant. And maybe it's not direct, but the indirect uh, implications are important. Premillennials, that would, that's not, a, uh, that's not a, a designation of somebody who was born 20 years ago or less. Uh, that is somebody who believes in the premillennial uh, 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 idea of theology where Christ will take his people home uh, to in the rapture and seven years later he will return before the millennial kingdom thus pre-millennials and that would be us we recognize five or six covenants and I would see six the Noahic covenant covenant with Noah the Abrahamic covenant covenant with Abraham the Mosaic covenant we'll talk about that uh, next time, Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant with Moses, so I don't like that designation, but it's kind of traditional. The Priestly Covenant, that's the one that most uh, kind of forget about. The Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant. And I think this is very important for us to understand. All of those are spelled out in Scripture. They're, none of them are implied. There's no implied covenants, like a covenant of grace, or a covenant of works, or a covenant of redemption. Those are implied covenants that we don't see in Scripture anywhere. Uh, when God wanted to make sure that we uh, see a covenant, He makes sure we see a covenant. Now, there's a controversy, as I said, over the priestly covenant, which we'll go over in a, in a week or two. Um, but it's clearly spelled out in Numbers, but it's not seen as a major part of God's redemptive plan. It's, it's more, we might call it a minor covenant. I personally take the view that there's no such thing as a minor covenant. That's uh, what other theologians would say. But whether you believe the five or the six, it doesn't make a, a ton of difference in your overall view of how covenants work. But again, none of these covenants are implied. And in fact, they're all given signs and signals. And, and you can point to places and times where they have been spelled out very, very clearly by the Lord. Now, not all the covenants are the same. There are varieties of covenants. There's a covenant between two equal parties, uh, one man to another or one nation to another. These are negotiated uh, between parties. That's, that's, uh, that's one type of covenant. Another type of covenant is an arrangement imposed by a superior on subordinates. And so we would put all the covenants in Scripture in that category. An arrangement imposed by a superior on subordinates. Covenants between God and man are not negotiated. God never sat down at a negotiation table and said, now what would you like in this covenant? He said, here is what's going to be in the covenant. Under those covenants between a superior and a subordinate, 
then we could have two other types of covenants, uh, subtypes. The first one we would call a grant covenant. This is, these are unconditional covenants. The God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant. Um, they, they have conditional clauses, but for some of these, loyal sons will enjoy it, disloyal sons will not. But there will always be some who do, and one in particular will enjoy the benefits of all the covenants, and that is Jesus, the son of David, will enjoy certainly the Davidic covenant. And then, of course, the new covenant is an unconditional covenant. How do we know it's unconditional? Because the New Testament makes it very clear, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's an unconditional covenant. You're in the new covenant. You can't be taken out. And so that's a grant or an unconditional covenant. Almost all of them have that flavor. The other type we would call a treaty or a conditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant falls into this category. I I prefer the term Israelite covenant because God didn't make a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with Israel. But the Mosaic covenant has been the traditional name for so long that it's hard to get rid of it. This covenant had terms. It had conditions, and here's the, here's the big, big deal about the Mosaic Covenant, the Israelite Covenant. It had a end point. It had a, an expiration date, and the entire book of Hebrews explains this quite well. But you think about Deuteronomy 18:18. 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Um, that's part of the, the condition of the Mosaic Covenant, that that prophet is coming. In Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So it's very clear that the reason that the Mosaic Covenant is a treaty covenant, a conditional covenant, is because it's coming to an end. And who ends it? Christ does. When, when did the new covenant end? There's a variety of views, but within a broad ballpark, some would say it ended the night Jesus was arrested when he said um, after supper he took the cup also saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood some would say at that moment I I would push it farther to the cross because his blood wasn't shed until the cross but at the cross for certain the old covenant Mosaic covenant is done it's finished it's been fulfilled in Christ and what was the old covenant kind of waiting for if we could personify it a bit the old covenant was waiting for one person who could live it out perfectly And Christ did that. Therefore, he fulfilled the old covenant. Didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And so I I made a little chart here. And again, this just illustrates what I've already said. A grant covenant versus a treaty covenant. In the grant covenant, unconditional, the giver of the covenant makes a commitment to the vassal, to the subordinate. Um, There's a commitment made. God makes this commitment. In a treaty covenant, like the Mosaic covenant, the giver of the covenant, that's God, imposes an obligation on the vassal. There's a a difference there. God never has imposed an obligation on you that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, he will remove the benefits of the new covenant from you. That is never uh, done to us. With the Mosaic covenant, um, you read all of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Those are the, the obligations if you obey, you get this blessing. If you disobey, here are the curses that are coming. And the curses are, are like 50 verses of curses. A grant covenant in the second 
uh, row there represents an obligation of the master to his vassal, of the greater to the lesser. A treaty covenant represents an obligation of the vassal to the master, the other way around. The third row, the grant covenant primarily protects the rights of the vassal, the, the lower person. The treaty covenant primarily protects the rights of the master, the, the higher, the superior. And in the grant covenant, no demands are made by the superior party. In the treaty covenant, the master promises to reward or punish the vassal for obeying or disobeying the, the imposed obligations. Now, uh, don't mistake this for the discipline of the Lord for a believer. Does he reward and punish believers? Absolutely. But not for eternity as far as punishment goes. We will always receive heaven because we are under a grant covenant, not a treaty covenant. So, let's go through some of the elements of a biblical covenant. And this is one of the reasons we don't hold to the covenants of covenant theology because they're all implied covenants and they don't give any information about the covenant. It's interesting to me when somebody wants to preach on the covenants of covenant theology, they, they, they only go to a few verses where there are implications but there's no just direct information. So here are some of the elements of a biblical covenant. There is a pledge or an oath. Deuteronomy 29.12 So that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. There's a date in which, now in the case of Deuteronomy 29, this is a reiteration, a, a re-signing of a covenant already made. But you can point to a day that it's made. So it's very clear. And in this case, God is the one uh, making an oath and then he asks his people to do so as well. And there's multiple places, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, that we can point to to show the people publicly saying, we agree. What is that? That's their signature on the covenant. We agree to this. We and our children will obey this covenant and may the curses of God fall upon us if we don't. Then you have a sign A sign is most often a repeatable memorial, something very clear. You know most of these. The Noahic covenant is a rainbow. I I wonder with all the people who have have, uh, conscripted the rainbow to mean something sinful uh, are what they're going to say before God. God gave it as a sign, the Noahic covenant, that he would never destroy the earth by a flood again. And so when we see a rainbow in the sky, we're, we're meant to say, isn't that great? Yeah, those storm clouds look bad, but they won't kill me. They won't kill the world. The Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. That was a sign given all the way back in Genesis 17. The Mosaic covenant. One of the reasons that we don't hold to keeping the Sabbath as a law is because it was a sign of the old covenant. It's not a sign of the new covenant. And so we don't hold to a Sabbath law. Now, is Sabbath a great idea? It's a terrific idea, but it's not a law. It's not a sign for us. The Davidic covenant. This one is disputed, um, but many feel that the sign of the certainty of the Davidic covenant is the day and night cycle. um, Because Psalm 89 basically says that God says, uh, he's being hyperbolic, uh, I will break my covenant with David as soon as day and night quit being. And so that, that is seen to be the sign. There's actually some good scholarship happening on that right now, which I'm hoping to update my own notes soon. And what about the new covenant? The three biggest options for the sign of the new covenant, 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's a great sign, but it's not repeatable. Right? How many times have you been indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Once. All right, that's it. Uh, baptism. That's a great option. And many feel that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. But again, it's not repeatable. Not, not, you, you shouldn't repeat it. Um, now, some might say uh, circumcision wasn't repeatable either, obviously, uh, for the Abrahamic covenant. So that's not a total uh, criteria. But the best option for the new covenant is the Lord's table. The Lord's table is repeatable and Jesus himself explicitly connects it to the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that's the repeatable sign. Then you have the witnesses to the covenant. The witnesses, the most frequent witness to the covenant is God himself. What higher witness are you going to call? God says of these covenants, I call myself as a witness. And so he witnesses according to his own character. He, um, to put it this way, he swears by himself. If God were in a courtroom, which is, I, I know is a, an outlandish thought, but if God were in a courtroom, he would never put his hand on the Bible to swear anything because he's the one who wrote it. There's no higher authority by which God can swear except himself. And then you have uh, another element, the consequences. The consequences are positive and negative, And they're different depending on the type of covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the positive consequences are blessing in the land. The negative consequences are uh, uh, the curses that God would bring and removing them from their home. Although, that's temporary. And you might say, now wait a minute. Steve, I've been here for a few years and you're always preaching that Israel will always be restored back to their land. Doesn't that sound like a, a permanent covenant? Absolutely. Israel will not be restored to their land based on the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenant was done at the cross. They'll be restored to their land based on the Abrahamic covenant, which God promised Abraham, your people will dwell in this land forever. So I put it this way, Abrahamic covenant, big umbrella. And under that comes uh, the Davidic covenant, the, um, the Mosaic covenant, and even the priestly covenant, which we'll get to. And by the way, the new covenant comes under the Abrahamic covenant. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. So let's do the Noahic covenant. This is one we don't talk about a lot. What's the context of God's covenant with Noah? It's the great flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Four verses later in verse 8, Noah found grace uh, in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see the grace there. By the way, little thing, a seven-year-old child recently told me that I'm not doing my math right. Chapter 6, verse 5. And I said four verses later, chapter 6, verse 8. And they said, but 8 minus 5 is 3. And you said four verses later, 5, 6, 7, 8, right? So just remember, do your math right. That's a little extra for the high school students who will be listening to this. Who are the recipients of the Noahic covenant? This is the very first covenant recognized and referenced in Scripture. Genesis 6.18, I will establish my covenant with you. That is with Noah. Who is Noah? Essentially becomes the new Adam, right? He is the new representative of all mankind. As the, the, uh, Every one of you are descended from Noah. If you think about that. 
It's the largest in scope of all the covenants. Genesis 9, 9 and 10. Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Who's that? All of us right here in this room. Every human being. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. In fact, it's even bigger than all the living creatures. The covenant is also with the earth itself. Verse 11 of Genesis 9, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. and Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So if you're worried about the polar ice caps melting and flooding everything, don't. Are the polar ice caps melting? Yeah, a little bit, but they, they go in cycles. They're going to freeze up again. That's what happens. Um, so don't worry about that when you see, oh no, the beach is one inch less than it used to be. Well, then move your house an inch and you'll be fine for the next hundred years. What's the sign? The rainbow. Now think about this. This is the most global, the largest in scope of all the covenants. It's to the entire world. The sign of the rainbow is the biggest visible sign of all the covenants. You see it worldwide. Anytime there's a rainstorm and the 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 uh, the elements are happening just right, you see the rainbow. And so it's worldwide. It's the biggest covenant and you get the biggest sign. And once in a while, don't you love seeing a double rainbow? I, I can't prove this biblically, but to me that's just, that reminds me of in John chapter 10 when Jesus said not only uh, will he keep you in his hand, but he will, the Father will keep you in his hand, that double security. So when I see the double rainbow, it, to me it's like I promised and I promised. That's just me though. What is the promise? The essence of the promise is, is it's an unconditional promise to never again um, flood the world with a flood. By the way, there's, there are a lot of liberal theologians that believe that the flood of Noah was just some localized flood. Um, there's been lots of localized floods over the course of human history. If, if Noah's flood was a localized flood, then God has broken his promise a thousand times over. It was not a localized flood. It was worldwide. There was one place you could be alive on planet Earth, and that was in the ark. That's the only place. What's the extent of the promise? Genesis 9, 16, it is an everlasting covenant. Now, this term used in Genesis 9, 16, it's a, it's a term that can speak of time without end. Um, it's not always the case. There is an earlier condition given. Genesis eight twenty two. while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So much for global warming. That's not going to happen. The implication is, is that the covenant remains until the earth is destroyed or remade by fire. Second Peter 3 and Revelation 21. So, uh, in other words, for our lifetimes, there's nothing to worry about at all. This has some interaction with some other covenants. It has impact on other covenants. Jeremiah 33, 20 and 21, God gives the unfailing regularity of the natural order as a guarantee of the Davidic covenant. Oh, so not only is the Noahic covenant connected to while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, so is the Davidic covenant. God's covenant with David. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
This is God using his faithfulness to Noah to guarantee his faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Or to put it this way, God will not restore Israel in the future as soon as he floods the world in violation of his promise to Noah. See that connection? God uses one promise to uh, leverage the fact that he will keep another one. So that's the Noahic covenant. What is the Noahic covenant about for us? Is it more than just that you don't have to keep a snorkel on hand all the time? It's way more than that. The Noahic covenant for us is a guarantee that God will finish his redemptive plan. He will finish. That every single elect person will come to faith in Christ. That he won't become impatient and judge the whole world before that last person comes to faith. So there's, there's a great comfort in that. It's about his redemptive plan. How about the Abrahamic covenant? And we could spend weeks on this and we'll go as far as we can. I don't know if we'll finish this today. Why is the Abrahamic covenant important? The promises given to Abraham are the foundation in embryonic form for all of the rest of redemptive history. Remember a minute ago I said the Abrahamic covenant is the umbrella under which all the other covenants come. The Abrahamic covenant is referred to multiple times all over the Old Testament and the New Testament and it's the basis for the whole covenant program. And I'll, I'll take that apart as we go. Let me give you some provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. I'll give you all the details and then I'm going to summarize them uh, in a bit here. Abrahamic covenant is found in multiple places in Genesis. God wants to make certain we get this. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Here are the provisions. A great nation will come from Abraham. That's Genesis 12, 2. Abraham personally will be blessed. Verse 2, Abraham's name personally will be great. Abraham himself will be a blessing. God will bless those who bless Abraham. He will curse those who curse Abraham. Why are we always pro-Israel? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. I don't want to be on the side of those who are cursing Abraham, which which is what you do when you are are anti-Israel. And in Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's where we see under the umbrella of the Abrahamic covenant comes the new covenant because you're part of all the families of the earth, right? Genesis 12, 6 and 7, land is promised to the descendants of Abraham and you cannot underestimate this. And it, it, it disappoints me to hear how covenant theologians reinterpret the Old Testament to say that land is not literal anymore, that that the kingdom is spiritual. There's only one thing that the word in Hebrew land means. It means dirt. It means a place. It means the earth. It's never spiritualized. Genesis 13, 14 through 17, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants is promised forever. No conditions are given to this promise. Now, slight side note, God never promised that forever doesn't have breaks. It had a 70-year break. And then after AD 70, it had almost a 2,000-year break. But the land promise is forever. Genesis 15, 1 through 21, God will protect Abraham and reward him. Verse 1, Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Verse 5, the specifics of the land dimensions there are given in verses 18 through 21, the exact boundaries, which, by the way, have never been fully fulfilled ever. So the Israel of the future is going to be way bigger than that little tiny strip of land that's Israel right now. It's going to be significantly larger. That's just Genesis 12, 13 and 15. 
Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. God will multiply Abraham's descendants. Verse 2, Abraham will be a father of many nations. Verse 5, kings will come from Abraham. Verse 6, by the way, how is it that Abraham will be the father of, of many nations? Uh, I've preached a couple of times on the wise men at Christmas time, and you should listen to those sermons because um, I think we can show from Scripture that the wise men are descended from other sons of Abraham and that, that he has been the father of many nations already. Kings will come from Abraham. Same reason. Verse 6. This covenant is viewed as everlasting. It is a forever covenant. Verse 7. All the land of Canaan is promised to Abraham. Verse 8. Not parts of it. And circumcision is the sign of the covenant. That's where we finally get to circumcision is in Genesis 17. Genesis 22 and this happens right after the incident in which Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, who is the one through whom the covenant is going to come. And it puts Abraham in this terrible position. Um, one preacher called this the worst case of suffering in all the Bible except for Christ himself. A, a man being asked to sacrifice his only son, the one through whom all these promises were supposed to come. And whether we learn from the book of Hebrews, by the way, that Abraham reasoned that if God commanded him to sacrifice his son and God said that through that son the blessing of the world would come then Abraham reasoned that after the sacrifice happened God would raise his son from the dead that's pretty amazing faith after that incident God reiterates his covenant with Abraham that his descendants will be innumerable Genesis 22:17 and the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's seed um, and in the case of seed in Genesis twenty two eighteen, it's singular that the nations of the earth will be blessed through one man. And who is that man? Of course, Galatians confirms that one man is Jesus Christ. So let's put all this together. There's a lot of overlap here. If we summarize the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, you have the individual promises to Abraham. They're, those are easy to categorize, so I'm not going to detail those. You have the national promises to Abraham's descendants. That is Israel. That his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. They'll have land forever, including specific land dimensions. And then there are universal promises, number three, to the nations. And, and by the way, a kind of older dispensational thought um, which we would not agree with, has been that the church age, uh, the, the classic phrase that they used is the, that the church age is a parenthesis in God's plan. I, I don't think God ever has a parenthesis in his plan. I, I don't think he ever made a course correction. And the church and the Gentiles have seen, been seen sometimes as sort of a, oh no, the Jews didn't come through, so we're going to work with the Gentiles for a while. According to the Abrahamic covenant, God's plan was always to bless the Gentiles. The church was always in God's plan. It's just one era of God's redemptive plan. So from the very beginning, God predicted that Gentiles would eventually be included in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. By the way, if you want to get more into this and understand this uh, more fully, I, I took a couple of years and preached through the entire Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, on Sunday nights, and I spent five messages at the beginning introducing how to understand the, the Pentateuch, and, and we go into all of this in pretty good detail. So if you're interested, that would be good listening for you. 
So what's the character of the Abrahamic covenant? Remember, we talked about the two major types of covenants. This one is unconditional. It's unconditional. The fulfillment is based solely on God and not on any actions of humanity. And this is very important because if if any covenant is based on our faithfulness, we're going to fail, right? Because we're sinners. Genesis 15, 7 through 21 is really key to understanding this. The Abrahamic covenant was made during a unilateral act of God passing through pieces of cut up animals. And you might say, what do pieces of cut up animals have to do with covenant? Let me give you two little bits of information about that. First of all, animals being sacrificed, literally cut in half and placed in a row in a covenant between equals or even a covenant uh, between the superior and the vassal on earth, in the ancient Near East, these animals were cut up, placed in a row, and both parties were to pass through that row of animals. And what this said symbolically was, may I become like them if I break this covenant? May I be the one sliced in half and, and strewn out on the ground? And so both parties are, are accountable. The word in Hebrew most often used to speak of making a covenant literally says to cut a covenant. And it comes from this idea of cutting the sacrificial animals and passing through them. In this particular case, Genesis 15, God commanded Abraham, cut up the animals, put them in the row. What did God do with Abraham at that point? Does anybody remember? He put them to sleep. Abraham did not pass through the animals. Only the visible presence of God did. Because it's an unconditional covenant not based on Abraham's fulfillment, but based on God's fulfillment. He is the one responsible for the ultimate fulfillment. And so because it's unconditional, it means that God will bring the fulfillment of the covenant. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that every single person and every single generation will experience the benefits of this covenant because a person's relationship to the covenant or a group's relationship to the covenant is based on what? It's based on faith. That you must have faith in God to participate in the Abrahamic covenant. And so there is a a conditional element, but once you become part of the Abrahamic covenant, it is unconditional for you. God will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, but your connection with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant is based on faith. And we see this illustrated, for example, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Will God be faithful to Israel? Absolutely. Is every single person genetically born from Abraham going to be part of the blessing of Israel? They're not. And so Israel becomes redefined as those who are genetically related to Abraham and spiritually related to Christ. Spiritually in Christ. So it's not so much of a redefinition, but a a more clarification. We could divide the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant into three parts here. There's the seed and nation, the land and the blessing. The seed and the nation, we'll put those together because both, they both have to do with descendants. Uh, Genesis 13, 16, the, 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 they will be innumerable, more than you can count. The first, the seed, takes the form of physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob uh, at first, But then the New Testament reveals that seed, plural, ultimately includes all who take Abraham's example of coming to God by faith uh, through justification. Romans 4 talks about this. 
It includes Gentiles through Christ, but that doesn't cancel out the literal physical dimensions um, already part of the promise. It's really, really important that um, we don't force theology into an either-or category. It should be both-and. If somebody says, well, are you saying that God has two different peoples, Israel and the church? That's a false dichotomy. God has one people with lots of variety, some part of Israel, some part of the church. Well, what if you're living in this age and you're a Jewish Christian? Well, you get, you're like the MasterCard symbol. You get overlap in both. Isn't that great? It's like dual citizenship. You just get these benefits. So the seed in Galatians 3 refers to the collective of all of God's people. That does not undo a nation of Israel. You are part of the seed of Abraham. You're not part of Israel. What does that mean? Well, it means that God divides his people according to varieties that he's commanded. But then seed also refers to the singular seed of Abraham, Genesis 3.16, and that alone is Christ. And so you have seed and nation, the, the descendants. Then you have the concept of the land. The concept of nation carries the idea of physical territory, doesn't it? A bunch of people wandering around saying, we're a nation What's the first question? Well, where are you from? Well, we just kind of wander around. Actually, you're in my nation, so you're not a nation. Land is a necessary component of constituting a great nation. The people and the land belong together. Land was promised as an everlasting possession for Abraham and his descendants. It can't be singled out from other parts of the promise as being temporary or being a symbol of something heavenly or spiritual. For example, our covenant theologian brothers and sisters would say that the land promises become symbolic. They become spiritual. But if you ask them, what about God blessing the descendants of Abraham? Is that symbolic or spiritual? Well, no, of course not. Well, you can't pick and choose. Either it's all spiritualized or none of it is. You can't just make that arbitrary decision. Just to be clear, as I said a moment ago, land means earth or dirt. There's, it is never made a symbolic idea. And then you have the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing. What's the ultimate purpose of the Abrahamic covenant? It's to bless all peoples of the earth. So remember, we said at the beginning that the covenants are the vehicles upon which the redemptive plan of God rolls. Why are we here in Bakersfield, California, here taking up our valuable time on a Sunday morning where we could be playing golf or we could be out uh, working in the garden. Why are we here worshiping the God of the universe that was introduced to humanity thousands and thousands of years ago and thousands and thousands of miles away from here? Why are we here? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. You have been rolled on the wheels of the Abrahamic covenant to this moment. And that is God's grace. And so Abraham and the people of Israel were intended from the beginning to be the channel in which blessings would be brought to all the peoples of the world. For a Christian to say that they're not particularly interested in Israel is like a race car driver saying he's not particularly interested in a car. That doesn't make any sense. Somebody's experiencing the wrath of God back there apparently, so <laughs> feel bad for them. But fortunately, he won't remember that. Let's keep going. We, I think we might actually make it. Because I told you the Abrahamic covenant's extensive. Let's look at it in the Old Testament. Or not. There we go. Next slide, if you can. My little thing froze up here. 
The official establishment of the nation of Israel happened in Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is speaking to Moses. A kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They introduce other people to God. They, they are a go-between between God and other people. Um, in Jesus' day, how did the Israelites, particularly the, the Israel's leaders, how did they view themselves? They viewed themselves as above. They viewed themselves as better. They, they lost the vision of Israel as being a conduit for God to show His grace to the rest of the world. They lost that vision completely. They became arrogant. That was their reason. That's the official establishment. We see Israel's continued existence, even in times of serious disobedience. It was sustained by the Abrahamic covenant. And when the people made the golden calf, Moses interceded for them in Exodus 32 by appealing to God's promises to Abraham. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. In other words, to whom? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why would God restore a people that never met Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How about prophetic messages of judgment still in light of God's promises to Abraham? Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 22. Thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. God is promising a spiritual and a physical restoration to Israel because of promises made uh, uh, literally thousands of years earlier. And that's still the case. Those promises will still happen. Now, there's a little interesting thought here on Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Some say that this teaches the full fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Thus says the Lord, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now this refers to the extent of the land as outlined in Numbers 34, but not the ultimate extent of the Messianic kingdom. In other words, I'm going to give you the down payment, and and yes, all that will be fulfilled, but it's more symbolic of if I can fulfill this much of it, I'm going to fulfill all of it. See also Ezra and Nehemiah on Sunday evenings. If I can bring 50,000 Jews back, I can bring them all back. It's God proving his point. There are a lot of other promises about Israel possessing the land after Joshua, Amos uh, 9, 14 and 15, for example. The land promise is unconditional. What happened with the land promise, though? Well, Israel lost their land in A.D. 70, um, and, and that was considered like the end of Israel as a nation. Pretty surprising in the mid-1940s when Israel as a nation became a nation again. That's not the ultimate fulfillment because they're still an apostate nation. But it did demonstrate what nation comes back, makes a comeback 2,000 years later. And nobody does that. I'll bet most of you don't even know the name of your great-great-grandfather. 
But God restores a nation centuries after centuries of waiting just to prove he can do it. That's in the Old Testament. How about the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament? As the New Testament era kind of opens, Jesus is immediately linked to the Abrahamic covenant. Those links are very clear. Luke 1, 54 and 55, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Jesus is connected to God's promise to Abraham immediately. It's not some new program. Luke 1, 72 through 73, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that's demonstrating that Christ came because of God's promise to Abraham, going all the way back. How about seed and nation? The promises of the Abrahamic covenant in relation to Israel continue, but now it's expanded because of God's promise to all who are in Christ, even Gentiles. Uh, the physical Jew is still recognized as the descendant of Abraham despite his spiritual status. And Abraham and his descendants were to be the mediators of this blessing to all the nations, to make God known to them. And this finds its ultimate goal in Christ. I, one of the most important moments for me in my seminary training was sitting under one of my favorite professors, Mike Grisanti. And in about two sentences, he explained the purpose of the entire nation of Israel. And he said this, I can remember it verbatim. Why did God make Israel? To make God big in the world. That was it. That was the purpose of Israel, to make God big in the world. Has God been made big in the world? We're here, aren't we? The church of Jesus Christ is making God big in the world because God is faithful to his promise to Abraham, thus to Israel. Abraham is seen as the father of Israel, and he's seen as the father of all who believe. Romans 4 tells us this. How about the land? And I, I need to update my notes on this because I've done quite a bit of study on this since this time. But <clears throat> there's not a lot of discussion in the New Testament of land according to traditional understanding, but it doesn't mean that it's null and void. Um, the New Testament is replete with implications about the continuation of the land promise. Now, I'll, I'll give you one in just a moment. But the land is connected at the hip with national Israel. You can't take one from the other so any reference to God's concern for the nation by default always includes land. It always will. Luke 1, 32 and 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. If there is a kingdom ruled by a Jewish king, there's going to be the nation. If there's a nation, there's going to be a land. We've always said this before. Uh, Christ will not set up his kingdom in, in Russia. He won't set it up anywhere else. What nation is going to set it up? It's going to be Israel. Now, what about the land? Uh, I told you I'd give you an example. I, I've, I, I'm changing my view a little bit here. It's been a traditional view that there's little discussion of the land promises in the New Testament. And it's true. There's not a, there's not a lot of direct discussion but there's a lot of indirect discussion. And you have books, um, for example, like 1 Peter. Uh, how does 1 Peter begin? The same way uh, James begins. James begins, James is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In Greek, the diaspora, the dispersed ones to the Jews. 
First Peter 1, Paul, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to all the elect exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora. James and Peter refer to Jewish Christians as dispersed ones, exiles. What, what is an exile? What's the definition of an exile? Somebody who's not home. By definition, by defining them as dispersed ones, it means there's a promise that they're coming home someday. So I have changed my view on that. I think the, I think the New Testament really points pretty hard to the land promises continuing. And then, of course, you have the universal blessing. Galatians 3, 8, blessings are promised to all through uh, faith in Christ. Now, I, I've kind of bantered around with this a little bit. Let me try to make this as simple as I can. We'll finish up with this. I said that the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for the whole covenant program. And I kind of tried to put this in a, in a way that we could illustrate it. The land promise. The land promise comes true, first of all, through the Mosaic covenant. What is the Mosaic covenant all about? If you read uh, Leviticus, you read the laws in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's all about how to live where? In the land. There's laws about boundaries and about neighbors and about caring for the poor. It is all about how to live in the land. And so the, the irony is, is that many in the covenant, theologian camp, covenant theology camp believe that the law of God in the Old Testament is still valid at, to some degree, but they don't believe that the land is going to be a fulfilled promise. Well, you can't have it both ways. The law under Moses was about how to live in the land in holiness. Don't move boundary lines. Uh, if your neighbor's animal wanders onto your property, be kind and bring it back. Don't slaughter it and make it your next meal. It's all about how to live peaceful life in the land as a nation. God's promise for a seed and a nation is connected to the Davidic covenant. Israel would be a real nation with a real king for all time. You can't be a nation without a king. And then how about God's promise of blessing? Under the new covenant, all the nations of the earth are receiving blessing. Abraham leads to Israel. Israel leads to Christ. Christ leads to the church. Leads to us. Leads to you. So, I don't know if you can picture this, but there was a day going all the way back to Genesis 12, and maybe some of you have done genealogies of your family. We could do a spiritual genealogy. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. At some point in your lifetime, get on your knees and thank the Lord for that promise made to Abraham because that's why you're here. You're here because God made a promise to an old man who said, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation and every family in the earth will be blessed. And then where do we see that fulfillment? Ultimately, the book of Revelation, standing before God in heaven will be people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Why? Because God's promise to Abraham to one guy will come true. And I'm thankful for that. So I hope you're thankful for the Abrahamic covenant. I sure am. I'm thankful for the Noahic covenant. It means that God's redemptive plan will continue. Well, next time we get to covenants, we'll go on to a couple of more covenants and 
take those apart a little bit. Wish I had time for questions. I've got, yeah, we can, two minutes, all right? Questions on the Abrahamic covenant, even though I just told you everything I know. Yes, Daryl. You know, um, how much time do we have? The question is, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, is all that land theirs? In the Garden of Eden, before even the fall of man, God identified nations. We know of at least two of them. One was called Eden, and the other one was called Havilah. So God established nations on the earth before sin. That was, his, that was always his intent, that people are made up of nations, or the nations are made up of various peoples. That's his outworking of his variety and all of that. Fast forward all the way to Revelation 22, uh, 21 and 22, new heavens and new earth. What do you see? You see nations. And so while the nation of Israel isn't explicitly listed in Revelation 21 and 22, you have New Jerusalem and you have a whole bunch of nations. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which nation New Jerusalem is in. So we're not used to this. We have capital cities in our states and we have a, a, a national capital of our country and that's been the case for millennia. Nations do this. But we're not used to a capital nation. And so Israel will be the capital nation of the world. The kings will bring their, their glory into it. So um, capital city, New Jerusalem, capital nation, New Israel. And I, I think it'll be called New Israel, but I can't prove that from scripture. Great question. One or two more. Well, yeah, starting your Lord's Day with a, with a flood of theology, I hope that's okay with you, but this is glorious because you think about this, Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. And you're here because God pulled this old man aside and said, I'm going to make you some promises. And we're here because of that. So if that's not grace, I don't know what else is. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for um, the fact that you make unconditional covenants with people who don't deserve it. Why would you make unconditional covenants with people who are all born rebelling against you, born as enemies of God, the scripture lists no other reason except your love. That in love you predestined many to be conformed to the image of your son. And so we, we gather here this Lord's Day in gratitude to our Savior who is a Jew, physically speaking, descended from Abraham. And we are here because of that seed of Abraham. And we give you praise and thanks this day. We pray in Christ's name, our Savior from Abraham. Amen.